Welcome to Secret Plus, everyone. I am Trace, and this is our episode on sharks, because it's Shark Week. Yeah, Shark Week's the best. This week, we're going to talk all about what are sharks. I mean, we're going to answer deeper questions than that. We're also going to talk about how did they evolve? Are they a danger to us or to the planet? Are we a danger to them? And I'm just going to lay this out and say, yeah, we definitely are. We're going to talk about the shark's effect on ecosystems and some of the most incredible things about these amazing animals, which we got from you. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to dive real deep, pun intended, into the history and biology of these incredible fish, including some of the stuff you might not have heard before. I'm excited about it, so let's kick into it. What are sharks? I mean, we all know what sharks are. Like, in our minds, you have an idea of what a shark is. It's this large, sleek-looking, apex predator awesomeness of the ocean. But specifically, sharks are in the Chondriacthes class, more modernly known as Elasmobranx, a.k.a. cartilaginous fish. Think cartilage, ain't got no bones. It's just cartilage in there. This group also includes rays and skates and chimeras, not the fictional creature one, real fish. They're deep sea weird looking. Names like ratfish, elephantfish, dwarf, sicklefish, Pacific spoonfish, pale ghost shark, pointy nose blue. I feel like Dwayne the bartender from that movie in Hawaii. But basically, this means that if you're a shark, You don't have bones, you just have cartilage. And you probably know what cartilage is, hopefully. It's the stuff that makes up your nose and your ears and, you know, helps line some of your joints. Another way to classify sharks is their teeth. They have many rows of teeth. This is something that's very famous about sharks. They continuously grow and replace new teeth over time. They also have gills because sharks are fish. Uh, The opposite of a bony fish, though, a, a fish with bones, also known as a bony fish, Uh, would have one gill slit on each side usually. But sharks could have five gill slits or more, six or seven. It's pretty incredible. They also have rigid fins as opposed to bony fish who have more flexible, kind of floppy fins. And sharks also have pretty amazing scales. They go one way and they're kind of spiky. I've actually touched them. They feel like sandpaper going one way and they're very smooth the other way. It's incredible. And sharks have detached upper jaws. If you think about yourself for a minute, hi, self, uh, most animals have a lower jaw. It moves like you and me, lower jaw. But sharks, they're different. They move their entire jaw because they have a detached upper jaw. And that way they can attack their prey by reaching out with their face. I think you can see sharks are pretty unique. They have like superpowers. I mean, that's what it seems like, right? Like in the animal kingdom, this is one animal has all these things and we aren't even done yet. They got more. How do they evolve to do this though? Like how did they get to be this incredible? Sharks evolved 400 to 450 million years ago. We don't know exactly when because unlike bony animals where their bones fossilize, sharks don't really leave fossils. They just leave their teeth behind. They leave imprints and sometimes scales have been found. One of the oldest evidence of shark scales was found in Siberia, and it dates to about 420 million years ago during the Silurian periods. North America was underwater, and fish would have finally developed jaws about this time, and the first plants started growing on land, and this is when sharks showed up. That's right. Sharks are, like, as old as some of the first land plants. But all they found were scales. We don't really know that much about the early shark. But sharks evolved like anything else, 
survival of the fittest. You know, they survived over various mass extinctions. We may be entering our sixth one now, and they've been around for quite a while. So scientists think their flexible jaws may have evolved so they could eat things that were bigger than themselves. It's a survival tactic. Their tail may have evolved so they could swim faster and farther and got more muscly. Again, survival use. And at certain points, some sharks adapted to not even eat meat. They would just filter plankton out of the water instead of being predators because there was probably some advantage to that. When oxygen was scarce in the water, sharks would evolve to swim deeper or more shallowly. And this is how they escaped things like the Great Dying, one of the more famous extinctions throughout history. Some sharks glowed in the dark, some sharks grew really big, some sharks were really small, some sharks looked like eels, and they would have rows of flat teeth instead of razor-sharp ones so they could have eaten plants, maybe. Some had really weird teeth, like the buzzsaw-shaped teeth that you may have seen on discoverynews.com, now seeker.com. That one's really crazy. You can Google uh, the helicoprion. It's really awesome. And also crazy to think that that was part of a living thing. So there wasn't just one thing that made sharks survive this long. It's almost more that the shark was able to evolve and adapt to all of these differing changes that Earth has gone through in the last few hundred million years. And a lot of crazy stuff has happened to our planet, to be sure. And sharks were really good at escaping and surviving and adapting, so they were able to live as long as they have. So today... We now interact with sharks on a pretty regular basis. I mean, at least annually, if you are a Shark Week fan, as obviously I am. But there's evidence of early North Americans learning to catch and eat sharks. And many experts tag Aristotle as one of the first to study sharks. So humans also have this long history of interaction with these fish. Aristotle has works from 330 BCE that mention observations of sharks. Of course, not like you could take a picture, uh, so there weren't really images, and he referred to them in the names that were given to them by the fishermen that were local to him at the time. So we don't know exactly what sharks he was writing about or what they looked like, really, but he wrote about shark nurseries and about anatomy of sharks and how they gave birth. Uh, Pliny the Elder, we talked about him before. I actually mispronounced his name. Sorry, buddy friend of the show, uh, he recorded an early interaction with humans and sharks, which he called dogfish. Uh, he talked about sponge divers having to fight the dogfish, and they would go after the loins and the heels of the divers, and the divers would have to fight back. But because dogfish are as afraid of humans as we are of them, that was also part of this tale. But over time, not many observations were made of sharks because humans weren't pushing out into the ocean. They were fishing, right? And mostly they were fishing in rivers and nearby the shore because that was where the fish were. No need to go fish into the deep ocean. Why would you sail all the way out there? There's plenty of fish right here, especially in freshwater areas where rivers and lakes have plenty of fish. So shark study, not the best in the Middle Ages, Probably could have guessed that. But in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, with the rise of the gentleman scientists, they started studying and cataloging species, including the dissection of a great white shark head. Imagine being the first person to do that. Whoa. But there was still a disconnection between sharks and science. People still thought fossilized shark teeth. <laughs> they thought they were dragon tongues. Science has really come a long way in some ways. 
The first major work on the study of sharks wasn't until the early 19th century. Now, besides scientists studying sharks, obviously sailors were interacting or coming across sharks quite often, especially sailors who were traveling in the New World to the Caribbean. They first recorded shark attack on a human in the New World. That was in the mid-1500s, where a Spaniard forced a native slave to dive for a pearl, despite him saying that there was a large fish down there that wanted to eat the native man. The native man dove and was eaten by what the experts think was probably a great white. Nice job, Spaniards. Way to go. As time went on, more studies of sharks happened, more shark attacks on humans happened, uh, and eventually the shark would be cemented as this vicious predator of the deep, which makes it sound like a supervillain, but it's not. Out of World War II, there came a lot of stories of downed men who were attacked by sharks, the USS Indianapolis being a very famous case of that. The Navy studied these claims, and they wanted to figure out a way to repel the sharks in the case of a downed ship or a downed airplane. Jaws came out, very famous movie, added to fear of sharks, and people started hunting them, and they started killing them just because they were afraid, and they wanted to preemptively stop them from attacking them. And the scary image of sharks continued, but eventually plans came into place to protect these apex predators, which is great, because come on, Shark Week should not be about how scary they are. It should be about how great and incredible they are, because sharks are important to ecosystems. They're important to the balance of nature, and they are just plain incredible creatures. My favorite thing about sharks, though, was learning about their senses. Because like us, sharks have sight, they have taste, they got smell, they got hearing, they can feel things. But unlike us, they have electroreception, which I've never really understood how it worked until I sat down to do the research for this episode. Sharks can detect electrical waves in the water. They can do that because... To move muscles, you got to generate electricity. So they can detect the smallest movements of animals in the ocean, like some sort of sharky superhero. Has there ever been like a shark man? You know, like a comic book hero, shark man? Producer Brian looked this up, actually. We were talking about this because, you know, there's like tiger shark, an ex-Olympic swimmer, has the power of a shark, meaning they swim really fast, can breathe underwater, has sharp teeth, but no electrical sensors, tiger shark. I don't care how fast you can swim. Drop the ball on that one, Morville. There's also the DC villain, King Shark. It's a humanoid shark. No electrical powers, though. Let me know in the comments if there are other shark villains and heroes that I missed. But for now, we're just going to make up a new superhero. We're going to call this superhero Shark Man or Shark Woman. It'll be equal. So anyway, back to sharks. So sharks' ability to track electric currents, it's actually in part because they live in salt water. Seawater, unlike air is conductive. It contains sodium and chlorine ions that can transport electric currents. So sharks can sense that electric current down to one billionth of a volt. So low. And they do that with this stuff called ampullae of Lorenzini. It's open pores on a shark's face. They're little black dots. There are 1,500 or more of them spread across the front of the shark. And they're filled with a jelly that can conduct electricity. So... The electricity comes to those little pores. The little pores have that jelly in them so the electricity can enter from the water, and then that triggers little hair-like cells called cilia. Once that cilia is triggered, the shark's brain is triggered too, that something is alive and kind of that way. So they can hone in on their prey just using the electricity that it takes for that prey to try and escape. Another sense that you're probably familiar with is their sense of smell. They have really, really great senses of smell, 
They also smell in stereo, which would be weird. I mean, we hear in stereo, right? Imagine if you smelled in stereo. That'd be really cool. So they know which direction that smell came from. And yeah, sharks can detect small amounts of blood. This is something they're famous for. Uh, One part per million for many sharks, which is like a teaspoon of blood in a swimming pool. And some other sharks, the more sensitive ones, can do one part per 10 billion. So one molecule of blood for every 10 billion molecules of anything else. And that's one drop of blood in a swimming pool. They're very sensitive senses of smell. Shark snouts have two nares, which are like nostrils. Picture a shark, you can probably picture them on there. And each has two openings, one for water to go in and one for water to go out. If Shark Man had that exactly, it might be a little weird. I don't think Shark Man or Shark Woman would walk away with a romantic love interest if they had nares that water was flowing in and out of, not to mention jelly-filled pores spread across their face. But we're not making attractive superheroes. We're making great superheroes. So it takes water in and it goes into nasal sacs over something called an olfactory lamellae. It's an olfactory system filled with sensitive neurons and nerve cells that runs directly into the shark's brain because smell is a huge part of the shark's ability to find prey. So two-thirds of its brain are dedicated to dealing with that smell in some sharks. As for touch, they have something called the lateral line system. It's a set of tubes that run down the shark's body. Water gets into that tubes through pores, and the tubes are lined with little hair-like things, and they're connected to sensory cells called neuromasts. So when there's movement in the water around the shark, ripples are sent out, which go toward the pores and tell the shark which way their prey is. They can feel water moving because water doesn't compress So if I go like this under the water, the shark would be able to feel it way over there. This is all incredible, right? This is all just crazy stuff. If there was a superhero that had all these powers, dang, awesome. I would read about that superhero in a book of animated frames. Even after all that, sharks are way more than just senses, right? You want to talk about shark penises? Of course you do. They actually don't have them. So anyway, male sharks don't really have a penis. They have two penis-like appendages, or as one website put it, dual sperm-releasing tubes jutting from the pelvic fin. This is all caused by a gene called Sonic Hedgehog. Not a joke, that is real. The SHH gene, it's named after Sonic the Hedgehog. The real, yes, that one, the blue one. Scientists studied male skate embryos and found the gene SHH helps appendage development, including limbs, spinal cords, and brains. And it stays about a month longer in males than it does in females. And when that happens, the sharks create these dual sperm-releasing tubes, which are called claspers. They tested this by activating the SHH gene in females, and they also grew claspers, or, you know, dual penis-like tubes. The weird thing is scientists don't know why they have the dual penises, because there's not really a good evolutionary reason that we could determine. Sharks, rays, and skates, they only use one penis during mating, and so the female shark needs just one of them. So why do you need two? We don't really know. But the males aren't the only ones with the weird sexual organs. The female shark can also hold and store sperm inside of her body after mating. If the timing isn't right for fertilization, the shark can just choose to keep the sperm in there. For like a month, it holds it there. Two more weird superpowers for shark man and shark woman, I have to say. Kind of odd. And once the mating has happened, the baby making is crazy too. 
So let's say that the shark female needed the sperm. It was time for fertilization. Well, there are three ways baby sharks are born, depending on the species. Viviparity, which is a shark embryo that grows inside the mother. It has a placenta. It's born alive, similar to humans and, and mammals. Oviviparity, or oviviparity, which doesn't have a placenta. There's an egg inside of the mother shark. It hatches inside of the mother shark. And then the baby shark gets nutrients from what is left of the egg inside of the mother shark. Or, because lady sharks can get around sometimes, there might be sperm from various shark baby daddies that created multiple baby sharks inside of the same female. When that happens, then baby sharks get to munching on them other babies. That's right, baby cannibal sharks inside of the mama shark. They aren't even outside in the world yet, and they're already killing other sharks. It's, it's crazy. Look it up. It's crazy. Look it up. It's crazy. Female tiger sharks uh, have this happen. They fight for survival inside of there, and bigger sharks eat smaller ones inside of the mom's body. Some sharks also will lay eggs outside of the body, more like an egg case, actually. They'll attach eggs to rocks or wedge it in somewhere, and then once it's ready, it hatches. Uh, fun fact, these shark sacks are called mermaid purses, which sounds real gross. I don't know why, but it definitely does. In case you're not done with shark facts, we got, we, I got lots more here in my notes. Not all sharks kill with their bite. The thresher shark was observed attacking prey with its tail. This is a superhero power that shark man and shark woman definitely need. In 2010, researchers saw a thresher shark speeding towards some sardines. Then they pitched its head down and then it used its tail like this whipping trebuchet thing, like in pumpkin chunkin, and just whoosh. They recorded speeds of around 30 miles an hour. It obliterated the fish and the shark just swims around. Clean up, clean up crew. Superpower for sharkmen. Super neat. Sharkman's here. Sharks don't have vocal cords, actually, so I don't think Sharkman would ever be able to say Sharkman's here. It'd be like a mute superhero, which would be kind of sad. Uh, but they also don't have eyelids. They don't blink. Uh, instead, they just use that as protection. Some sharks don't have that ability. They have this membrane that covers the eye, kind of creepy. And others just roll their eyes back into their heads. I'm not really sure if this is a great superpower. Not good for... I feel like Sharkman and Sharkwoman not great with the social skills. This is a thought. But sharks themselves aren't out to get you. They're using those shark superpowers of theirs to try and go out and find prey, to try and eat. They just want to eat. They just want to get through their day. You know, they're just being sharks, trying to get through their day. And I know most of you uh, who are watching this now probably know in your mind how rare shark attacks really are. The statistics, you know, that say you're more likely to die of bees and vending machines falling on you and you know, make, making selfies and whatever else. But how true is all this? How dangerous are sharks? So yes, sharks kill people. They absolutely do. Just as bears kill people when you're in the woods or dinosaurs, if you were to get into my time machine and go back in time, because, you know, you'd be inside of the home of an apex predator. This is their terrain. This is their water. And their only job is to eat and reproduce. So stuff's bound to go down, yo. If you walk up into my house... I'm the apex predator in my house. I'm probably going to bite you. Dinner party. It's just not that common. The international group Oceana, they tallied it at about 36 shark attacks per year between 2006 and 2010, and 4.2 of those were fatal attacks. 
The Florida Museum of Natural History's International Shark Attack File, which is a real thing. No one ever calls it this, but I think it's funny to call it FNMSAF. They have about six fatal shark attacks per year from 2005 to 2014. But it might be getting more common. In 2015, the all-time record was set for unprovoked shark attacks, meaning that no one punched or grabbed the shark and it attacked people. And it might be because of global warming and also El Nino. See, sharks like warmer waters. So areas of the sea with warmer waters, that's where the sharks will go. That only increases, of course, the chance of human-shark interaction because we also enjoy warmer waters. And that's why when New York recently saw its 10th recorded shark attack ever, it was in part because of this. However, these numbers aren't exactly stable. In 2014, that actually had the lowest number of shark attacks since 2009. But each of the last 11 decades has seen more and more shark attacks. And it could just be because more and more people are in the ocean in the shark's habitat. It also could be because of global warming. These are complex things. So, yes, shark attacks can happen unprovoked. And this just means not so much that we should be afraid of sharks, but that we should be aware of their presence and aware that we are in their territory. And one reason is a lot of different shark species exist. There are 400 different species of sharks, and only about 12 of those have ever been known to attack humans, and only three are responsible for most of those attacks. So three out of 400 is actually a pretty great ratio. Those three, in case you're curious, great white, tiger, and bull sharks. But again, 400 species, and only three of them are responsible for most of the attacks. Basically, if you're out in the ocean, there is a good chance that there's a shark nearby. There's a very bad chance, a very low chance, that the shark cares that you're there. They're busy doing their shark thing. Sharks don't want to eat you. We are not part of their ecosystem. They don't have a taste for human. They don't have any interest in us. They don't specifically hunt us down. They, they don't have malice, you know. Sharks don't hunt us, which is very important because when you're the prey that's being hunted, you'd probably know it, and then you should be worried. Many shark attacks are sharks mistaking the person for their normal prey, like fish, a turtle, or seal. And then they take a bite, they realize, oh, <laughs> this tastes funny. This isn't what I wanted. And then they, you know, they peace out. Thanks for the snack. Sorry. This is a minor incident when it's a small shark, you know, and it thinks that you're a small fish, so it takes a bite and, oh, that tastes weird. <laughs> Get out of here. But when it's a big shark, it can be very serious. More damage is going to be done if it's a tiger shark, a great white, or a bull shark. I mean, if you give your dad your cheeseburger, he's going to take a dad bite. He's your dad. That's the deal. You give your little teeny sister, your baby cousin, a bite of your cheeseburger, it's no big deal. But either way, they're going to take a bite because that cheeseburger looks delicious. That's off topic. There are two reasons that sharks will take a bite of your cheeseburger. They will either accidentally take a bite because you bump into them, you know, they'll get the sneak attack up in there. And those two different things can happen if you are there around feeding time or if the shark is being hostile or feels threatened and wild animals can have this happen. If it feels trapped, you're not necessarily going to know that, but if you get too close to it, it's going to lash out to protect itself. And if it's hungry and it thinks there's food around and you are too close, it's going to grab you to check and see if you're food. Both of those things are completely natural behaviors that any animal would do, but for some reason, when it comes to sharks, we attribute it to malice. And there's shark attacks that mostly are just cases of mistaken identity. And then there are also fatalities, and it's usually because the shark just bit too hard. 
not because you were a particularly delicious looking morsel. So we're kind of talking about this in general. Let's get down to the to the nitty-gritty, right? Let's let's get into the odds. Most popular thing when we're talking about sharks are the odds of being attacked by a shark. Everybody likes talking about that. The International Shark Attack File calculated this and it looked at the 2003 population of the United States, which was 290,850,005. They divided that by the number of shark attack deaths, which was not very many, by the way, 6. Then they divided that life expectancy of someone who was born in that same year, 2003, 77.6 years. The ISAF website has the odds written as this, 1 in 3.748067 million, almost 3.75 million, 1 in 3.75 million. That is very small. However, and if you got your pencils at home, you've probably already done this math, 290.85 million divided by 77.6 years divided by the number of shark attacks in a year does not get you 3.75 million. Producer Brian was fact-checking this fact from, like, the authority, and he realized the math was wrong. They weren't factoring in the shark attacks. That's just the number divided by the life expectancy. So using their formula and plugging in the numbers, we get 1 in 624,678, which is not 3.75 million. It's a lot higher risk than that. It's still not a big risk, but... It's still a lot. And this, of course, compared to something like lightning, which Noah says is about 1 in 12,000, though now I want to check their math too. (laughs) As you know, find one problem. But either way, 1 in 12,000 for lightning, 1 in 624,000 for shark attacks. So averaging out the ISAF and the Oceana figures, let's say there's about five deaths from sharks per year. This falls below all of these other things. Like five deaths per year, that's way lower than 36 people in the U.S. who died from dog attacks this year. 83 who died from being hit by a non-dog mammal, like a cow or a horse. 900 in the U.S. from riding a bike. Five from venomous snakes or lizards, so about the same as a shark. 13 from non-powered aircraft, like a glider or a hot air balloon. Hot air balloons have killed more people than sharks. And 116 by explosions. And these are just in the U.S., by the way. These are numbers from the CDC. So because not that many sharks even have a desire to attack you, they don't like the taste of you, just by those two things, you you shouldn't be afraid of sharks. But if you still are for some reason, that's fine. There are tips to minimize attention from sharks, and here they are. In the rare, rare case that it comes after you also, I will fill you in on what to do. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says, One, stay in a group because sharks are less likely to attack people in groups. They will mostly attack prey that are alone. Be aware of what time of day you are in the vicinity of a shark because sharks feed mostly early in the morning or late in the afternoon. And don't go in the water if you're bleeding because blood and sharks make sense. Studies also showed that they're attracted to a fluid made in the abdominal cavity, which I think is pronounced peritoneal fluid. It lubricates tissue that lines the abdominal wall. So apparently don't Go into the water if you have a hole in your abdomen. Makes sense. Probably stings because it's salt water. But others think that our blood smells differently than seal blood, so maybe blood isn't that big a deal. And of course, uh, yes, commenters, before you get down there, people have studied menstrual blood. Some say that they can smell it, but some say that they're not really sure and it's better to be safe than sorry. That's all I'm going to say about that. 
They also say don't wear shiny jewelry or clothing that can be mistaken for something that would resemble a fish scale. An obvious one would be don't swim near sharks when they're feeding. Don't do it if you don't want to be eaten by a shark. Or swim where fishermen are normally catching sharks. Don't splash around like an injured animal. I don't know why you would do that anyway. And other tips are things like don't touch sharks if you see them. Don't swim in dirty or murky water so you can see if there's a shark below you. Don't swim around animals that sharks usually hunt. And don't, of course, be a seal. I think that one's more than obvious. Just my my tip. If you ignore all these tips and somehow are unlucky enough to be attacked or think you're being attacked by a shark, some people say punch the shark in the nose, uh, but that's not the best. In fact, aim for the eyeballs and don't use your bare hands. If you have something that you can hit the shark with, aim for the eyes with that object. Also, don't play dead because sharks don't really care. They're not thinking about whether you're dead or alive. Like, oh, (laughs) he's dead. I thought he was alive. Guess I won't eat him today. They're going to go for you anyway. And also, you can uh, punch at the gills if you can't reach the eyes for some reason. If you escape, just GTFO. Just get out of there. So clearly, sharks are not the most dangerous things in the oceans. We are. And unfortunately, we take full advantage of that status, and we sort of brag about it to a degree that is just not good. Humans hunt sharks. We hunt apex predators. An apex predator is the thing at the top of a food chain, something that nothing hunts. It only does the hunting. Now, it used to be things like sharks were apex predators. They didn't get hunted by anything else, so they'd evolved to not breed very fast, to live for long enough that they could manage prey and not have to worry about dying from being hunted, which is why prey animals usually breed faster, like rabbits. Sharks, on the other hand, they don't have that luxury. Humans are now the new apex predator. Humans hunt sharks to a dangerous level. They hunt them for fins. They hunt them for meat for their food. They hunt them for medicinal purposes, like for shark liver oil, and sometimes just for sport because people are dicks. And a report compiled by researchers at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, shows an estimated 100 million sharks are killed every year. That's between 6.4 and 7.9% of all shark species on the planet annually, killed every 365 days. What the hell is wrong with humans? One of the biggest reasons for the mass killing of sharks is shark finning. Shark finning is a practice of catching a shark, slicing the fin off, and then throwing the rest of the shark back in the water. The shark will, of course, then die a slow and painful death because it won't be able to swim, because it won't have fins. This is done mostly for shark fin soup. It's a Chinese delicacy, and one cup costs like 100 bucks, which is crazy because shark fin soup is a goopy mess that has no taste. It's almost entirely eaten as a status symbol to show that you are more powerful than a shark. It's gross. That's my opinion. But it isn't just for their fins that we end up killing sharks. A large part of shark population decline is due to commercial fishing, bycatch. Basically, they're killed accidentally by fishing boats that are attempting to catch other fish. And maybe the shark was in the region hunting or just swimming by at the wrong time. And because they need to swim to breathe, once they're trapped in a net, they die. They may get thrown back, but it doesn't matter at that point because they're already dead. We also kill sharks once in a while because they kill or attack a human, like it's some kind of sick natural justice. We already touched on how unlikely it is to actually get killed and are attacked by a shark, but when it does happen, we end up taking revenge on sharks and killing them in droves, which makes no sense. 
It's animals being animals, and they are the apex predator of that region. Shark populations have been in sharp decline for several years. And according to a Smithsonian article, some shark populations have decreased 60 to 70% because of humans. Sharks are extremely susceptible to extinction. And as I mentioned earlier, apex predators, so they reproduce slowly. Uh, According to the director of the Florida Program for Shark Research in Gainesville, George Burris is his name, Quote, sharks are not the same as other fish. Sharks are slow growing and slow to reach maturity. They're live bearers, which means females keep their young in their body just like us. But instead of nine months, it takes 12 to 18 or more. Also, sharks generally can't give birth again until a year after they've given birth. Sometimes they're on a three-year cycle. So restoring shark populations can quickly turn into a decades-long project or longer. So if we are killing off a ton of them, it's obviously not sustainable, and they are at the top of a food chain. So what happens if we kill all of these apex predators? What happens is their prey, the thing that they were eating, begin to flourish. And this is the case for things that are like smaller sharks or rays. The large populations of these animals will destroy the populations of their prey. And then you end up in this weird cycle of destruction, like rays and smaller sharks could eat smaller fish or they could eat scallops or clams or other things. And that could mess up all sorts of other things in the ocean. In a study from researchers out of the future of marine animal populations, they analyzed shark population data for the Northwest Atlantic Ocean alone, just that area. And they found 11 species of sharks in that area consume rays, skates, which are similar to rays, and other smaller sharks. Of those 11 apex species, Because they've declined in the last 30 years, the populations of their prey have increased vastly. And this is worrisome all over the world. In North Carolina, cow nose rays are decimating oysters, clams, and scallops. In 2004, they had to close a century-old scallop fishery because of this. In Japan, they saw a population of long-headed eagle rays that boomed. And that destroyed numerous shellfish stocks. In Western Australia, researchers found that tiger sharks are extremely important to seagrass because they hunt in the seagrass, so their prey that would normally consume it would avoid it. Unfortunately, now that there are no tiger sharks, the seagrass is eaten by all of these other things like shellfish and turtles and sea cows, which we do, we actually do love sea cows, they're pretty great. But They eat so much of it that it's bad. And the seagrass pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, so without it, we're actually causing even more problems for us up on land. In places where shark populations have dramatically declined, like Bermuda and the Indian Ocean, sea turtles are causing entire seagrass beds to just disappear. I bet you thought that you would never be on the side of sharks eating sea turtles, but you should be, because that's the natural order. And it's not just seagrass beds, and it's not just scallops. It's also coral reefs. This is a pattern. When shark populations decline, other fish populations go up. When their population go up, their prey population goes down. And guess what? They feed on plants and algae. And if the plants and algae don't get eaten, they overgrow smaller coral reefs and then smother them. We also affect sharks in a variety of other ways. We're not just hunting them all. We kill sharks through pollution. You drive your car to work every day, something comes out of the tailpipe, goes into the atmosphere, and is slowly absorbed into the ocean. 
The same way that if you leave a glass of water out overnight and it tastes different, the ocean is absorbing carbon dioxide. So is that glass of water. That's why it tastes funny. It's carbonic acid. That ocean acidification is a serious issue for sharks, as are warming seas due to global climate change. Now, it would make sense because sharks like warm water that a little bit of warming might be okay, right? The shark now can go places it didn't used to be able to go. And in fact, a study found that embryonic development was faster in sharks because of the warm water. The elevated temperature of the water was good in some ways. It made them grow young faster, which could help their populations rebound if we let them. But the elevated temperature and the higher levels of carbonic acid, CO2, increased energetic demand in that they had to use more energy to get around. It decreased metabolic efficiency, so when they ate, they didn't get as much energy from their food. And it reduced their ability to locate food by smell, which is one of their superpowers. It's like shark kryptonite. Considerable reductions in growth rates were found as well, so sharks didn't get as big as fast. And this is a complex reality for predators, that they are living in a changing world. Ocean acidification, they said in this study, reduces sharks' ability to effectively hunt and exert strong, top-down control over their food web. Terrible. So even just driving a car, you're a jerk, you human. I'm not that mad at you, but they they should be. And on top of all that, and I know this is something that I think we should address considering, uh, there are repercussions for attracting sharks to a specific place for tourism and film production reasons. People love to see sharks. We all love sharks. I mean, look where we work. We love talking about sharks all week, but sometimes this can have negative repercussions. Filming sharks can cause sharks to not have enough energy to actually hunt. Because sometimes when you chum the water to get them to go to a region they wouldn't naturally go to, they have to expend energy to get there. That energy could have been better served in their hunting. And they're not going to get a meal. They're just going to get a camera in their face. They're not going to get a meal. They're just going to see some tourist divers in cages. So we, as humans who are interested in sharks, can also be harming sharks. Now, this is a little different because we're not killing them, but we are affecting their environment. Part of science is that nothing can be studied without changing it. We've talked about this before. When Jane Goodall sits with chimps, she's changing the behavior of chimps by studying them. But at the same time, that is part of science. It's another thing to go into their environment and kind of move them out of the way for your own good. They don't get vacation. They can't go to the store and just buy extra food. If we make them jump out of the water so that we can see it look cool and we don't let them eat from that, they might not be able to jump out of the water next time when they actually need to eat. We sent out a a tweet earlier in the week to get some questions about sharks so that we made sure that we weren't just talking about the same thing that people tend to talk about every Shark Week. And so this episode, I'm going to be answering your questions. So make sure you stick around. Let's kick into it. So first comes from Rochelle, or Rachel R, underscore, on Twitter. And she wants to know, why can't we keep great whites in captivity? Love your question. I love where your head's at. There's been a long history of trying to do this and trying to display great whites at aquariums around the world. It's actually a really difficult thing. There's been very little success with it. In 2005, the Monterey Bay Aquarium set a record of keeping a great white in captivity at their aquarium for six and a half months, and then they had to release it back into the wild. But to keep it for six and a half months took a huge amount of planning, more than three years of work, a three million gallon holding tank, And it took all of this time and effort just to be able to get the shark for six and a half months. 
When a shark was accidentally caught in a fisherman's net, the scientists were there in 45 minutes. They were able to get the shark into the tank. They let it adjust for 25 days. Then they transported it via semi-truck from Southern California to Northern California to get it into this 3 million gallon holding tank. It's crazy. But again, it didn't work very well. Uh, Monterey Bay had tried this before in 1985, and there it only survived for 10 days, and it wouldn't eat. In 1981, a SeaWorld set a record holding a great white for 16 days before releasing it back into the wild, and other places have tried to hold great white sharks, but they usually just die within a few days or even within a few hours. Most recently in Japan, where a great white died in captivity after just three days. It's not easy. But obviously, aquariums want to try because who wouldn't want to see a great white shark up close? I mean, I would, and I'm sure you would too, without, of course, the worry of death. That's kind of a big deal. But it doesn't work. Why? Well, first off, they think it's because they are migratory animals. They swim very long distances to hunt and feed, and sharks are very social. Great white sharks have hierarchies. They have all sorts of interactions, and Actually, a lot of research shows that there are reasons for the long distances for great white migration, although we don't know how and why they do that. But they literally swim across whole oceans and back again in a matter of months, just being kept in a tank, even a three million gallon tank, is extremely restricting. It'd be like if you were used to driving all over the country and now you couldn't leave your bedroom. It'd be really, really stressful. So one of the only things they can do is refuse to eat. They might also bump into the tank walls just because they're not used to being captive. Another reason is that these are predators, apex predators, actually. They like to feed on live prey. They are hunters, right? So if we're holding this in an aquarium, uh, they don't scavenge for food. They don't like being fed by humans. So aquariums would have to provide living animals so that those sharks could hunt and eat. Just picture that. I mean, this is not unlike people with pet snakes feeding rats and mice to their snakes, right? Except we're doing this on a giant scale because it's a great white shark. So they'd have to go out, find a large marine mammal, bring it to their aquarium where they built a tank big enough for a shark that normally swims through oceans and then have it hunt that animal to get it to eat. That's crazy. Chances are you would buy a ticket for it, but the shark would not participate. I could pretty much guarantee One thing they notice with great white sharks in captivity is that they actually bump into the glass a lot, which can injure the shark. Some scientists think this is due to a problem with their electroreception when they're in the tanks. Some think that there's a problem with the water because it throws their electrosensitivity off, making them confused about where they are. Maybe the water isn't mixed properly. It's not the best seawater. It's not the right kind of seawater for them. And all of these can be factors in why great whites haven't been held in captivity for very long. But as far as we know, it's hard to tell exactly why without a lot of data. And it's very difficult to capture and get them into a tank to test that. And then they die. So we don't feel great about it. If we have to keep killing great whites in tanks to find out how to keep a great white in a tank... I don't really feel awesome about that. Maybe you do, but I don't think a lot of scientists who love these animals would. Great question, though. Thank you, Rochelle or Rachel R. Next comes from Blackrock Pearl on Twitter, and that is, what does a shark diet consist of? Well, it's a big answer because it's a lot of stuff. Many sharks are not that picky when it comes to food. They eat marine animals. They eat things like stingrays, crustaceans, sea turtles, squid, octopus, fish, even, of course, seals and sea lions and seabirds. But sometimes they're going to eat pretty much whatever they can get their little jaws on, you know? Bullets, 
car parts, 24 pork steaks wrapped in paper, gasoline canisters. And those are things that have actually been found in sharks, by the way. Not all of the sharks that exist in the world are the same. So they don't all have razor sharp teeth ready to rip flesh off their prey, you know. Whale sharks are filter feeders. So they swim similar to a whale and they filter plankton and tiny plants and animals out of the water and that's their sustenance. So again, we're not part of them and you humans, we we don't we don't fit into their calculation on food, but they eat a lot of stuff. Doru Pero asks one of our favorite questions, where did the name shark come from? Where the word shark? There's not actually a lot of clear information on this. Uh, dictionaries usually just list it as unknown origin, which means it's probably so old that we didn't know where it came from. But I did read a paper from Pre-Columbian Art Research Institute written by Pre-Columbian Institute because something has its origins based in the Mayan word zoc, pronounced like shock. Spelled Zoc, though, X-O-C. And it may have been picked up by English sailors. So it also could come from a Saxon word, which I have no idea how to pronounce. It's spelled S-C-E-A-R-A-N. So Caesarian, Sicarian, Sicaran, I'm not sure. Uh, I would look up a pronunciation, but that doesn't seem to be a thing that you can really do using the internet somehow. But it means cutting into pieces or cut into pieces. Oxford Dictionary from 1828, they say that it comes from a Greek word, kacharius, meaning sharp tooth. Others say it may come from the German word schurke, which is a cheat. A 1914 dictionary settled on obscure origin. (laughs) So honestly, we don't really know, which is awesome. BP the Ghost asked, how did the hammerhead evolve? So first off, hammerhead shark's head, it's called a cephafoil. And I'm guessing you want to know how that specific part of the shark evolved. And most experts agree that it's increased eyesight. Uh, Over time, the hammerhead evolved to have this kind of 360-degree view on the vertical plane, meaning that it can see above and below, as well as, you know, around. With just a small movement of their head, they can even see behind them, which is awesome for the shark, great for being a predator. Other benefits included increased maneuverability through the water because of the fin-like shape of their head. It increased electrosensors on their face to help locate prey better, and it also has a better sense of smell than some other sharks. But specifically, hammerheads evolved from larger sharks, and all of these things give them an advantage, and over hundreds of millions of years, they evolved to just need the little eye stalks, just the cephafoils, which is really, really cool. Rob Roy commented on one of our videos uh, asking about sharks being immune from disease. And this may have come from the rumor that sharks don't get cancer and, in fact, can help cure cancer in humans, uh, specifically the cartilage inside of a shark. And this has led people to try and market pills made of shark, which devastates shark populations, and that is terrible. And they have been proven to not cure cancer. This is a myth. This is a rumor. Multiple FDA trials found no positive effects of taking shark cartilage pills in affecting your cancers. Sharks also get cancer. 2004 study out of the University of Hawaii identified 42 tumors in numerous sharks. Some were found even inside of that magic cartilage. And that really, really disproves that cancer thing. But finally, Daniel Puzzy asks, If sharks eat at McDonald's, and look, Daniel, 
I know you might have been joking, but we don't joke on this show. This is about science. Okay, we joke. We joke a little bit. We were talking about super sharks earlier. But anyway, one time a six-foot bull shark actually swam up to a McDonald's, Daniel, during a flood in Australia. But it hasn't been proven that it actually ate any of the McDonald's there. But no one really can say for sure because, you know, maybe it floated away. So if it did or it didn't, maybe a shark at an Australian McDonald's ate there one time. Bet you didn't think we'd answer that one, but this is our job. Thanks so much for hanging out with me and also with Sharks on Seeker Plus for Shark Week. Awesome. You can find more Seeker on YouTube or Facebook. Just look for Seeker, more Seeker podcasts, wherever you get your casts. Please subscribe, share us with your friends, leave us a rating if you haven't. You can also find me, Trace Dominguez, on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, if you want more science in your life, which I hope you do. And thanks so much for tuning in. This was written by Brian Pendergast. The associate producer was Blair Battenberg. It was produced in 2018 by Trace Dominguez and recorded in 2018 by Victoria Barrios. Our intern was Cara McCurlin. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll be back next week with more stories from the science multiverse. I am Trace. Thanks again for listening. Listening.